Gotta get my penguin celebration. Good to go. You know, just <laughs> podcast penenka. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Hardcore Football. Uh, I'm your host, Phil Baki. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mika Burrell. Uh, Mika, we got a uh, we got a, a good one today. I think we do. Yeah, yeah. We've, we slacked a little bit with the group stages. Um, and now the round of 16 is done of the FIFA World Cup. But for good reason, because we wanted to bring this uh, guest on tonight once the group stages were over so yes i think this will be really good and i won't waste any time uh introducing our our guests uh we'll get right to it but um we're joined by those those who listen to our podcast seriously loco about el paso locomotive will know him well but uh we're joined tonight by christian canales fresh back from his trip to qatar and the the world cup um, Christian, welcome to the show and uh, welcome back to to American soil after a little two week uh, footballing festival. Thanks for having me, guys. It's, it's, this is a good one to to make my my debut on the show, <laughs> so uh, I'm happy to be here. Well, um, before we'll we'll talk to Christian about his experience over in Qatar. We'll talk about what's going on in in the World Cup as we you know as we get back into the quarterfinals um we'll talk a little bit about the potential future of greg berhalter with the u.s men's national team we've got some listener questions um and yeah we'll just have hopefully a, a good chat um with the crew but um if you're finding us for the first time we are hardcore football um we're available on all the major podcast platforms um, and we also are on Twitter at HXC football and on Instagram at HXC football. Um, so check us out there and that's where you can drop listener questions, interact. Uh, I know Mika, Mika, you inadvertently <laughs> were doing numbers. What was the, what was the big tweet that hit during the, uh, round of 16? Oh. <laughs> it was, um, Messi hugging Martinez, trying to calm him down before the Mexico match. <laughs> Everyone was just joking around about all the uh, celebrations, and I was like, "Well, uh, you know, like Jordan Henderson, Jude Bellingham, and right. um, Mbappe and Giroud embracing." And I was like, "Well, my favorite is is Messi Martinez." So <laughs> <laughs> the bromance is on on full display, um, and really? uh, I know in particular the Hendo Bellingham celebration really really got my my liverpool uh that, that did numbers on mercy side for sure <laughs> yeah that was <laughs> it got the it got the rumors spinning uh quickly but um but yeah so you can find us there um we do we do typically record more frequently but obviously we've been uh competing with a lot of different things but this uh this world cup we're back um and uh we brought we brought christian christian i mean the people will want to hear, I mean, first and foremost, what was it like, like being in Qatar, being at the World Cup? How would you 
describe this experience, I guess, from like the the high level before we get into some of your more, you know, more of the refined uh, experiences. Like, what was it like attending this World Cup? Yeah, man, it's it was like definitely an experience. It's like nothing that, you know, I've ever done before in a lot of ways. You know, I travel a whole lot. So this is by this is a leaps and bounds the farthest trip I've ever taken. Um, the longest trip I've ever taken. So in that sense, it was already, you know, very unique to me. Um, and then it's the World Cup. You know, it's it's exactly what you'd think as far as, you know, just seeing so many different types of people and just being exposed to so many different languages, like, at the same time. Like I, Like I said, I've never been to any real big cities or real big places before, you know, being on a train on a you know on a subway and and hearing like five different languages being spoken around you at the same time is just something that that not a lot of people get to experience so that was cool and then you know just in summary i will say that my personal experience because i also being there and meeting so many people i know that there are a lot of there's a spectrum of experiences that people are having but personally for me um it was pretty positive um, I know that it's kind of like, like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to not say it. I'll say this later per <laughs> privately, but, um, it, it was good. I know that there's a lot of different types of coverage. Um, and that's not to say that you know, a lot of the negative that people are seeing is not happening, but it's not everything. Um, so you know, for whatever reason, I was born under a lucky star. I happened to be a little more privileged. I did a little more preparation. Whatever reason you want to attribute it to, my experience was a very positive one. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, a Doha from a city, from a city's perspective, I think like it falls kind of below the line in terms of when people think of tourist destinations in the Middle East. It's like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, and then, you know, way further down the list is probably Doha typically. So how did you find Doha just like as a city? You guys stayed in Doha, right? And then kind of ventured out from there? Yeah, so what I... Is that there's there's like two Dohas. There's like old Doha. There's like new Doha. Um, and so we stayed in, in old Doha, but we stayed in like the hotel district of old Doha. So... Around us, it was nice, but it wasn't any nicer than you'd see in a, you know, a, like, mid-market mid city in the U.S. Like, I'd compare it to downtown San Antonio or whatever. You know, is it, like, beautiful, the nicest place you've ever been? No. But is it, like, a dump? No. It's just a tourist center in, in, in a city. So that was nice. Um, we had to venture into kind of the non-tourist section of old Doha briefly because um, Martha's phone actually like bricked out on her like our second day there. Um, so we're scrambling and there's no Apple stores in <laughs> in Doha. So we were Oh, Googling. her like actual phone, not her like, I figured you meant like a burner you guys got on a data plan on uh, Roshan or whatever. Like. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so 
Um, there had been, I, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but there had been like talks about how there were like certain apps that you would have to download to, to get into Qatar and, and people were, they would, they were like kind of sketchy about the kind of permissions you had to give, but, um, the really bad one, they ended up like repealing. It wasn't going to be required anymore. So that was going to stop us from taking our phones before we weren't going to, uh, but since we didn't have to do it, we ended up taking ours and just got a, an international plan um through our provider so we had just had our regular phones over there but yeah so her actual phone um you know conked out on her like we got there sunday and like we woke up on tuesday and it wasn't working we just googled <laughs> this place um and they had a a website and you know so i sent them a message and and you know they said okay like come by here's the here's what you what will quote you so we took it and they were really nice. You know, it was a really nice place. And um, that shop was in like a really like, not seedy. I, I'm just, my 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 middle class is showing. It was just a very <laughs> part of town that I would not venture to normally. Sure. Um, like a business area, but like not like white collar business area. Right. Um, so... So that was our journey there. And then, you know, we spent a lot of time also in, in like the new area of Doha. It's like, it's like a suburb of Doha. It's called Lucille. Um, and it's like built as like the city of the future. And so the video that I sent you, like my first day there um, of the skyline at night, it was in that area. I believe um, that's where they're having the final, right? At Lucille Stadium? Yes, the stadium yeah. near Lucille. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's in that general area, and uh, my wife actually has like a distant relative that lives there. Um, I don't know what he does. He works for like TSA or something like that, or not TSA, but he works for a, a <laughs> <NSA>? U.S. <laughs> Slightly different acronym. Uh, he works he he works for a, for the United States, um, but he lives over there, and so they take care of him really well. So he has a really nice apartment in a really nice area there lives right next to like a giant like food truck park with like 60 different stalls um wow. so we spent a lot of time around there and and that was really cool so i got to see kind of like all sorts of spectrums of the of the city he gets jollibee every day <laughs> <laughs> yo jollibee was fire yes i was gonna say put it on the record if jollibee was fire <laughs> Oh man! For I, those uh, who don't know, it's, it's Filipino say. fast food. <laughs> <laughs> I described it to my mother-in-law as Filipino KFC. Exactly. That's basically much. how I described it. Well, Christian, obviously you are a Mexico fan. I mean, that's not obvious to people who are listening to this, but we know we've known you for a while, and you are a Mexico fan, as are many people in our border town of El Paso, Texas. So you went there to support Mexico. Went to their group matches. What would you say was the your favorite match that you attended? Was it one of those Mexico matches, or was it one of the others that you that you went to? I know you went to Japan, Spain, and um, what England, was US. your favorite? What was yeah. your favorite? Yeah, England, U.S. What would you say top the list? My favorite match was probably Saudi Arabia, even though that was like the heartbreak match in the end. But like. If you can recall, that was the only match where Mexico scored goals. So, yeah. <laughs> True. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was just, it was one of those matches where 
obviously it would have been cooler if they won, but it was one of those things where in the moment it's like, man, they're going to mount this like historic comeback and I'm going to be here to see it. Um, so in the moment, that part of it was really cool. Obviously it didn't happen. Um, but, but I think I had, uh, you know, I enjoyed that quite a bit, that atmosphere, um, and just celebrating with the people around me and stuff, just complete strangers, absolutely like going batshit over, you know, other complete strangers playing a game, um, you know, when we break down sports for what they really are. But um, that one was cool. The Argentina-Mexico match was insane. Um, I've never been in a louder environment before. Um, you know, going home and my, my ears are, are still ringing when I wake up the next day. Um, so that was insane. That one was less fun. Obviously, we lost. Um but also, like, just because it was so intense, there was just a lot of unsavory behavior uh, going on around that that can ruin, you know, the atmosphere, when, especially when you're there with family and stuff and just trying to, to enjoy yourself. So that was a little bit less enjoyable. But as far as, like, atmosphere and vibes, like, I, I don't think you can beat that. It was just 90,000 people screaming their heads off for 90 minutes. What was it like when you saw Lionel Messi score that goal because obviously you're wanting mexico to win but like you just saw the goat score a goal a crucial goal in person at his last world cup likely does that does that hit you in the moment or are you just like damn it <laughs> so <laughs> goddamn this guy <laughs> like... <laughs> i will say it did not hit me in the moment and it's maybe this is embarrassing i don't know maybe i shouldn't be embarrassed because being there is a little bit like different but i didn't know it was messy at the time Mm. Um, because we're far as fuck from the field. <laughs> so, and, and to be fair, you know, the, a lot of the Argentinian players look very similar from, you know, 100 right. yards. So at the moment, I didn't know it was him, but in, you know, in after, you know, about two, three minutes after the announce, after they announce it and replay it, I'm like, oh yeah. It's like. I now saw, I know what I just saw. It's like I saw a guy with dark hair and it, wearing white and blue, like kick it in the goal. That's a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that is, I mean, you mentioned the Argentina Mexico, and it is probably two of the best traveling fan bases of any, like at this World Cup, where Absolutely. Argentina. I think you can you could see you know in subsequent games that Argentina has played just how well. I mean, I think the game against Australia, it felt like it was 90% Argentina fans and like one strip of Australia fans. So with Mexico and Argentina playing against each other, it is like two of the fan bases that probably travel the best. Yeah, yeah. And kind of to that same point, that's how the match was, the Mexico-Poland one. It was a Mexico match. It was a home match for Mexico, absolutely. Um, you know, there was probably 87,000 Mexico fans there and 3,000 Polish people in the stadium. <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, probably Mexico and Argentina are, are I, I think, I mean, I have no way of proving this, but they probably are in, in this World Cup, the, the biggest traveling, um, groups there. Cause even I, the Brazil match I went to, nothing like that. You know, the noise level was nothing like that. Um, the U.S.-England one was was well attended for sure, um, but it was in a stadium that held, you know, 60,000. You know, 60, um, and, I, and I think that they scheduled that for a reason because they 
I figure they know, you know, who they're selling tickets to, and so then they place the matches accordingly. And even the Spain-Japan one I went to, I mean, that was in a 40,000 people stadium, which isn't nothing, but when I've just attended, like, five other matches with 90,000 people, you can just, it just feels very different. It didn't feel the same, and I think I said that afterwards. I was like, ah, the match was fun because Japan made, like, a really, played a really great second half, but, like, vibes level, it was, like, a snooze fest. That, uh... Now, be honest. Did you did you clean up after yourself after Spain Japan? <laughs> <laughs> no, my Japan shirt. But as soon as the whistle blew, I took it off so that I wouldn't have to. Be... <laughs> <laughs> he that is foul. That is a violation. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> of the so of the grounds that you went to though. So you mentioned obviously the vibes, um, like difference in terms of capacity and just like the noise in the stadiums and all that but um the the grounds you went to like facilities wise and and just like experience wise which of the stadiums was for you the pick um so there's different things about them there's there's a lot of factors to it um lucille stadium is obviously the nicest you know it, that's why they're playing the final there it's the biggest nicest so that's not a surprise in that you know it looks the nicest um the really like inconvenient part about all of these stadiums is that um as far as accessibility not all like levels are are accessible um and so because of that like only certain areas have like elevator access um and you know we didn't pay like top dollar for any of our seats or anything. So we were pretty far away most of the time. Um, and so I, I don't know how far up we climbed, like, like in terms of distance, we were on the seventh level, uh, for all of our matches. And so, which is weird. That's the highest it can go. So if someone would want to research and figure out how all stadium is, that's how many stairs we climbed five, for five of our matches um <laughs> so that was the that was the really shitty part about it and then um this is kind of the the down part of the downside of like the whole trip but um there are just some things that i don't feel were very well planned out um and i think it's because this was a very rushed project you know they tried to develop a whole infrastructure in you know eight years or whatever um but when you take like a train or a bus to the to the stadiums you get dropped off and it's still like a for Lucille at least it's still like a 25 minute walk to the stadium and then you have to climb up those seven flights of stairs <laughs> to get in the stadium so um that part i did not like about it and so and a lot of our matches were there because we were attending a lot of mexico matches and like i mentioned before i think they play them there because that's where a lot of the attendance going to because mm-hmm. um, if certain teams played all their games in certain stadiums um, so like the group that Japan and Japan was in and Spain was in none of their games were played at that stadium they were all played in much smaller stadiums um, so that was hard the Spain Japan match like I said it was a much smaller stadium but everything was much closer we were at the top level but we were on the third level of that stadium um and the subway dropped you off like 
an eight minute walk from it. So, like I said, there's just different different factors to it. Um, and that game, the Japan Spain match, came at a good time because that was the day before we left, and so by that time we were just absolutely burned out. So I don't think we had it in us to climb seven more flights of stairs. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so, so I think, um, I mean, overall, I think the Lucille, one, the Lucille Stadium was really cool because, you know, it's just so big. That's you know, you you can't just you can't beat just being in a big old stadium filled with people. So it had its downsides, but um you know looking back i just kind of think that that was the the coolest place to be in so christian obviously this world cup is unique for many reasons but one of the biggest ones being that it's taking place in you know winter for like north america and and europe and like northern south america and all those places so it's different because usually this is like a summer type festival um and there's been reports in you know here in North America, especially in Europe, that the vibe is different this World Cup because you know the doors of the bars aren't flung open for nice weather and and playing the the playing the games in the town square and all this. Um, you know it's the same here in the United States. We kind of have to seek out those watch parties, but the buzz is not the same. Maybe because it's coinciding with like major um, American holidays like Thanksgiving, like Christmas, and what have you. But I'm curious, what is the vibe like in Qatar when you were there um, in terms of, you know, when you were going about your day, when you weren't going to a match, like, did you feel like Qatari life was just going on in spite of the World Cup around you? Or did it feel like you were in like a World Cup fantasy land where everyone is focused on that and there's advertisements and, and talk about the World Cup everywhere? Like, how, how did the vibe feel outside of the stadiums and outside of matches and match days yeah i mean as far as like visibility wise is they definitely made it very visible um and in a couple of ways like i know i sent you a, a picture of um of granite shaka on the side of a on the side of a skyscraper mm-hmm. um and those are all over the place um those so, so you see plenty of stuff like that um they a lot of the you know the tourist areas uh very uh i don't know what the word is but king friendly very pedestrian friendly um so there's a lot of like railing along streets and stuff um and every single one of those has like a a tarp with you know world cup logo i don't know marketing on it Mm. um and and so that, that everywhere you go um so you definitely know that that it's going on there in that regard it's visible in that sense um there's i think that from what i could tell there isn't it's not that i saw like a central area like i said the term you use is like a town square there wasn't like a central area at least not that we saw um there's things that are kind of things are very spaced out as far as like the pockets of where you would find people um so there wasn't like one area where you could definitely go and and find you know the majority of people hanging out for that person i think that that um had something to do with it so there's little areas where you could go and and find different crowds of people doing stuff like that um so i think that that could have been better for sure 
And the other thing that, that hurt, especially when when we got to the last round of games, um, is that they were happening so late. Maybe, I, I don't know what time games have gone on locally in, in other World Cups, so maybe this happens everywhere and this isn't like like an excuse for it. Um, but during the day, especially in those last two uh, that last round of games, there's not much going on. The the second to last game starts at started at seven p.m. and the last game started at ten p.m. Um, so I think that 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 can factor in, especially in those like really big elimination games. But even earlier on in the first ones, you know, the first ones are happening at one and four, um, and so that, I will say that a a lot of the time, if you weren't in the right place, you weren't getting that that vibe and so i would kind of, that's kind of like a maybe something that was missing um but if you did happen to be in the right place you know there's certainly an atmosphere it's just you had to work to to find it yeah the um i think you know i and i think there's a a bit of like a weaponized version of this word of ter- in terms of like footballing heritage or culture those sorts of things that kind of get used as a stick to to hit a country like Qatar that doesn't have like these long standing sort of sort of like footballing traditions but at the same time like it is a very different sort of hosting country than like anyone's ever like it's just never happened this way so it's yeah it's a little bit interesting to to see how they tackle those sorts of things and in this case it seems like Qatar's idea was like we are just gonna kind of put people like get them to the stadiums and like once they're there maybe like that will be where the buzz is like kind of just around the stadium yeah and and to kind of like what you you said something that i was gonna hit on um based on what mika said but the other thing is that and this is i i don't know what the right word is um i i going into to recording this i wasn't sure about how to feel because obviously this whole situation is like a very complicated one for for and so half of me is like i enjoyed myself and i think that some of the like the coverage and some of the way that the world cup is being portrayed is like this is i say this and i want to be very careful about how it's perceived but like unfair um because it wasn't you know just a festival um it, it wasn't it just wasn't and so a lot of that part being portrayed as unfair uh but i also understand why people have such a negative viewpoint on it and that's that's also fair um for for people to feel the way they do and so to to that end mika what you had said earlier you know about how you know bars being open and showing the games you know with windows open and everything they don't have bars in qatar you know (laughs) that's just one of those things sure and and, you know maybe that's why it's just a dumb reason to have a world cup there which is a, a fine point you know it's there's there's less fun to be had there if if those are the kinds of things that you're into, um, and and if that's what you you're into and that's how you feel like you have a good time, then that's fine too. Like I enjoy going to a bar, um, but if that's if that's not what it is and that's just not what it is, and so they kind of like Phil said, they just have their own ways of of trying to 
create that atmosphere. So, so was there fun to be had? Yes. Is it in the same way that a lot of people would expect it to be? No. So it's just it's a little bit of thinking outside of the box, and maybe you shouldn't have to do that, you know, when you're when you're going to this event. But that's just what it was, and that's the situation that I put myself in. Well, now that I think about it, I think you had hospitality tickets, right? Yes. Did you did you get yourself a Budweiser? Yeah. <laughs> a very yeah, coveted so... Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for the Mexico matches, the three Mexico matches I went to, yes, we we had a hospitality package, um, which in hindsight I probably wouldn't do again if I knew that. In looking back, I wouldn't do again because obviously paid a premium for that. While it was enjoyable was it worth you know what i had paid probably not because basically what it included is you know after you get into the stadium gates open three hours before um you know kickoff so let's say kickoff is at 10 the gates of the stadium don't up until seven and they don't start like the buses to the stadium until six um and so if you were lucky enough to be on the first bus there which is the quickest way to get there because they have like 80 buses dedicated to getting you there as opposed to the subway um which is like one train at a time and only so many people can fit on there and stuff um so the buses are, are advertised as the quickest way to get there and i think that they are they're certainly the most comfortable way too because the subway they're just shoving people in there like kansas sardines um and and the bus you know they only put as many people on there as there are seats so um, it was certainly the preferable way to get to the game, but, you know, if you're lucky enough to get on the first bus at 6 for a game that starts at 7, you get to the stadium at 6.45. It's like a 15, 20-minute walk to, like, security where, where you have to go through all that process. And so you don't get into the stadium until, like, 7.15. Um, and then, and that's not even in the stadium. That's, like, in the stadium perimeter. And then they have, you know, music and, you know, concession stands and promotional stuff going on all inside that perimeter. Um, and it's a very large area. So then you make your way over to the hospitality area, which can be another five to ten minute walk. Um, and depending on what the scenario is like there, it might take another five to ten minutes to get into hospitality. So all things considered, even if you planned everything perfectly and everything went perfectly, which it never does, you know, in any situation, um, you get to hospitality and it's 7.45. Um, and so two-thirds of, of this time that you have there before the match is already burnt. Um, and so they have, like, like finger foods and stuff in there, and it was never really great food. Um, wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Uh, but it's all free already and it's all you can eat. Um, and then as is the, the beverages. And so... Um, to, to get back to where we started, you know, yes, I, I was able to enjoy a couple of, uh, they had Budweiser and Corona. Um, so, so I was able to, wow, big baller, <laughs> watch out, import, <laughs> imported. <laughs> the Budweiser's an import, actually, to be fair. That's um, true. You're so... craft American beer, not <laughs> <Not> craft. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but like, Obviously, I don't want to get, like, shit-faced for several reasons. One, I'm there with my family. Two, don't want to get arrested for public intoxication of all places. Um, right. So, you know, two or three beers max before the game. Um, 
So was the price that I paid for that package worth two or three beers? Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, fair. The uh it's yeah, the the whole the whole experience obviously extremely extremely unique in many ways. Um but we mentioned that you were there to watch Mexico specifically. It wasn't it it what did ultimately lead to disappointment in terms of like Mexico fans saying, "Hey, stop getting knocked out in the round of 16 and then like Hey, not like that. Um, <laughs> the uh, but that that game against Saudi Arabia you mentioned, obviously Mexico, we're still in with a shout of, of qualifying, and I I think the moment in particular, like the Luis Chavez goal, um, I mean that probably had like that has to be the moment of of your your trip, right? Like just the the stadium even on the broadcast from my perspective sounded just like the energy just sounded like the place exploded when that when that goal flew in and what a goal as well yeah i mean that it's it was a fantastic goal and i don't think it like should necessarily be like goal of the tournament but it should definitely be on the sh- um you know i i'm trying not to, i sound too biased if i said like oh that was definitely the goal of the tournament because i don't know but it should (laughs) definitely be on that short list for sure because man what an absolute rocket um you know and that's the you know if nothing else for the rest of the tournament that that was the shot that's gonna put him on some radars for sure um but but yeah that was that was an insane goal and I mean, as for Mexico's performance overall, obviously we know it was a disappointment, but what did you make of like seeing the games in person? Was there anything that you saw from this Mexico side that gave uh, you know, you insights into maybe like what you want to see from them going forward or what, uh, what changes need to be made to improve on this finish? Yeah. So Christian, just your thoughts on what, what Mexico, you know, with this exit, obviously a lot probably going through the minds of the like FMF in terms of like what's next and all this stuff and super disappointing showing in the World Cup. Although, I mean, there was a bit of stagnation with all these round of 16 exits. It felt like Mexico could never get over this hump. But what is having seen these matches now in person, like what what is next for Mexico and what do they need to do to to be right by 2026 yeah so i'd said since the beginning of the tournament that i needed them to actually do really poorly um to has as some sort of like wake-up call you know um because if they did the thing you know where they get through the group stages and you know fall just short in the round of 16 it's like well we did the same thing that we always do so on the field so off the field we're just going to also continue to keep doing the same thing that we always do um which as a united states fan you could probably also feel that like yeah that hit <laughs> that hits right so um so in a way like i'm kind of glad that this happened and and if I didn't have to be there to witness it, I wish that they would have also not scored in the Saudi Arabia game also and just looked terrible all throughout. Uh, because I think that, like, 
the Federation just like as a whole needs like a teardown. The way that business is done there needs to change. And will it? No. Uh, because, you know, of money and, and politics and all that good stuff. But um, we're at least on the right track in that we're getting a new manager for the national team. Because, <laughs> um, man, is like... Like, I don't... I don't think anyone wanted to be in their job less than Tata Martino. Um, I don't think anyone was anyone anywhere in the world was more burnt out in their job than that man was. Um, and and like to be fair, like who can blame him? I think that that like Mexico, the Mexico head coach is probably like one of the least desirable positions in all of like international football. Um, because it comes with a giant spotlight and like just by nature of of being mexico by not being like european i think that your like mexico fans have like european level expectations but not necessarily the same resources or the same player pool not to say that there aren't a ton of talented players in mexico or eligible to play for mexico but also it's not you know, it's not and it won't be Argentina or Brazil, you know. Um, like I just don't think that 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 level of of resource and, and just like pedigree is is in the country. And so that's fine. That's not to say that, you know, they can't win. I mean, I wouldn't say that Croatia's, you know, has the same like pedigree as far as like a player pool as those other countries, but they managed to do it, so you know, all it takes is one good run to, to bring a trophy home. Um, and I think that they have that much potential. They have at least that much potential to be a dark horse. Um, because that's what they are every year. You know, you, with the exception of maybe this year, you know, how many times have you ever gone into the World Cup and said, oh, Mexico has absolutely no shot. They have no business there. You know, they always have a chance. And so I think that it's just... We just need to find a couple of good people to to run the ship, and and it'll be there, you know. Um, anyways, it, I think it all starts with with finding a manager who who is a little more passionate about the team, and and I think that that comes from within, and and by that I mean I think they need I think the next manager needs to be a Mexican. Um. I, I just think back to like 2014 and like the passion that Miguel Herrera had for the team, like just the visible passion. And obviously that's him, you know, that just not every Mexican manager has that same fire. But I just think that you have to be more invested in the project when it's when it means more, more to you because it's your country. Um, so I, I think that that's what needs is is a manager that has some i just don't think that that martino ever had passion i think that he obviously he's a good manager he he doesn't get that job for no reason but the passion was just never there i'm uh i'm gonna say something controversial yet brave um and i i'm gonna say that like do we think that there's any connection between mexico's uh like recent 
I want to say underperformance because I mean they finished second in qualif in, in qualifying in Concacaf right, and then they they did go yeah. You know, so underperformance comes in exiting at the group stage of the World Cup, but what's the impact of the freeze on promotion and relegation been in Liga Mekis? And like, do we think that that has had an impact on player identification at all? Like over the last, cause it's what we're now three years into the freeze of five. So, um, do we think that's having any impact or like stagnating things at all? Where like, maybe player movement isn't happening at the rate that it would where maybe diamonds in the rough are sort of like coming up or, or is it just like the academies or the guys like coming up right now who are going to Europe and stuff just aren't like what the team needs. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that there are good enough Mexican players to have done well. I don't think it's the, it's, it's that they can't find players. Um, I think that player selection in this tournament was terrible um, because of this manager's politics, favorites, philosophy, depending on how cynical you want to be about it. You know, um, like Raul Jimenez had no business at that tournament. And the fact that he, Raul Jimenez, you know, like he is supposed to be like, the talisman for Mexico that he comes off the bench, you know, in all three matches, he has no business being there. That's not who he is. And if you're depending on him to be a bench player, then your your mind is in the wrong place. Um, so I think that um, that was a problem. At the, and other players, I, I don't think Hector Herrera had any business there. I don't think Guardado had any business. They're they're too old. Um, and so I don't, and all that is to say, like, I don't think that there is a lack of player identification because there are, I, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an absolute expert, but I can tell you that Santi Jimenez should be there for sure. I think this might be a hot take, but I think that Diego Lainez should have been there. Um, it's hot for so, Mika because Mika does not <laughs> like Diego. <Lainez. laughs> no, I mean I, I can I can see the rationale is that just like you need pace and forward thinking and younger legs. So I can certainly see that. I can see it from that perspective. It's just he's never impressed me for for Real Betis, but yeah, he's like the. Carlison of Mexico, though, like he shows up when he puts on the Mexico shirt. <laughs> yeah, which hey, some players just like that, so fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking um, more with Charleston later, which I never thought we'd say on this show, <laughs> literally ever. <laughs> uh, but that's to say that I, I don't think that that is was the problem here, and I, I don't know that it would be a problem later on. What I do think is the problem is like the like age-old problem of Mexico like overvaluing players so that um, these players that are studs in Mexico um, could be getting much more valuable experience and and um, just improving themselves so much if they were able to to be sold um, but you know uh, Luis Chavez I think he will get sold eventually but probably for more than he should. I think someone's going to take a gamble. Uh, but someone like him, 
going easy. You know, it shouldn't have to, someone shouldn't have to be like digging into their pockets for the money to get someone like him. He's good enough to go for much less, or he's he's not as good as I should say his price tag will be. Um, and there's a lot of players like that um, that I think would would be better served by being sold for cheaper than than any team in Mexico is willing to let them go for. I think that's the bigger problem than promotion relegation. But because uh, I think the promotion relegation thing. I think that that's for good reason. I don't. That's one of the things that I don't think has been a mistake, um, because it was just it was like the prim the Premier League, but worse than that. It's it was always like the same clubs going up and down. And then when you do have that like surprise pick that that goes up to the next division, they're they're not a team because they financially cannot handle being in the first division. Um, so so it it's. It, I think that there's a good rationale behind it, so I'm I'm less concerned about that. It's an interesting thing the getting priced out of players because I think I think the U.S. is like currently um, and Mika. I don't know about your thoughts on this. Maybe we'll maybe we'll actually because I know we're about to talk about the U.S. Uh, as well, but. U.S. players, this like valuation creep that that Christian is talking about, where it's like okay, a Mexican player goes to Europe for 15 and now the next guy is not going to go, uh, you know, it's going to be 20 and then it's going to be 25. And, it, you know, it just like continues to go where the next, the next guy is always a little bit of a step up. And we see like even someone, you know, youngsters like Paxton Aronson moving for like decent money to Europe. Do you think the U.S. might be in like have some risk like where MLS teams are expecting like big big valuations and European teams kind of start looking elsewhere for the hidden gems like rather than trying to go to the states for guys who are maybe a little unproven and you're almost paying for like you know like an American tax <laughs> American tax oh my goodness no, I mean, yeah, you it's it's something it's certainly something to keep an eye on. I don't know that the um the effect of that or the prevalence of it is maybe as great as it is in Mexico because I think there are a lot of players on even just this this cycle of Mexico that are playing in Liga MX and they really shouldn't be. Um and I mean I'm gonna bring up my boy like Cesar Montes, 25 years old, still at Monterrey. He should be in Europe. He's been linked with PSV, Espanol, and it's just not materialized. I mean he's as a defender at his age, he really needs to be playing at a higher level, and that's just one player, but one that I've I've kept an eye on. Um and and we've seen what that can do for the likes of like Irving Lozano, you know, playing in a Champions League team, playing in a top, top league, proving himself, having a great season for Napoli. Um, you know, and it, it's with with the American players, I mean, I do think there's a risk of that um, starting to, to to crop up because, um, I mean, the Aronson deals seem to, like, take a while to get over the line. Now, the one thing that I would say that maybe there's an advantage as far as American players go is that there's, definitely a track record of recent success moving players abroad sure um to look on you know weston mckinney pulisic of course 
um, Tyler Adams and, and what have you. So maybe it's the, the challenge is not as great and maybe they're being better advised maybe, um, you know, American players up and coming that are, that are making those moves. So um, yeah, I don't think the, the issue is as marked as it is in, in the Mexican ranks, but yeah, I mean, you know, as a U.S. fan, like when we play Mexico, obviously, like it's very heated. But like outside of that, I w- I, I want to see Mexico do well. I think it's just good for Concacaf. I think a strong Mexico makes a strong U.S. You know, we need a competitive atmosphere in our confederation so that we can go to the World Cup and not embarrass ourselves, yeah. <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, it's it's a shame that Mexico didn't make it out of the group, um, because it, it's like you said, like it it's been about like crashing out at the route of 16 and it's like not like that right but um yeah i just i i want to see more mexican players going abroad just period point blank like you know and that might sound like euro euro snobbery and you know but when you want to be the best at your sport you got to play where the best play Mm -hmm. same thing in the other uh sports i mean if you want to be the best basketball player in the world you got to play in the nba like that's how it is yeah right um and so I mean, yeah, I think in football, it's in Europe. The women, the women's game is like changing in this way right now. Like as we speak, where the U S women's team is finding out the hard way that like, oh shit, the rest of the world now is catching up. And like, we do have to go to France or Spain or Germany to play like at the level that cause the NWSL, like, professionally we have to be able to admit when our leagues are not keeping up. Um, and right now, like Barcelona is the best women's team in the world bar none. Like there's, Mm. there is no team better than Barcelona right now. And I mean, there are a handful of amazing women's club teams, but most of them are not in the U S like they're not in the U S and like Mm -hmm. the women's national team is suffering as a result like of the NWSL being like an insular and like unimpressive, like, and I, I'm sorry, it's just not like, it's not at the level that it should be given the level. So I say all that just to say, like the more they hang out in an insular league that doesn't challenge them, then yeah, the quality suffers. Meanwhile, everybody else is out getting better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, should we talk then about, you know, on the other side of the border, this this story that was, I think, j- broken by Jeff Carlisle mm-hmm. about the U.S. Soccer Federation possibly entering into discussions over a new contract with Greg Berhalter. I mean, what is your reaction to that, Phil? And I guess we can get Christian's take, too, as a Mexico fan. <laughs> like, are you cackling or are you like, I still live here. Like, I don't want to be unhappy. <laughs> I, uh... Yeah, I mean, the I guess my initial reaction it's really funny because the the reaction from a lot of the voices that I follow, like people that I follow in American soccer media, folks from the Athletic, you know, folks like Jeff Reuter, folks like Sam Sam Stayskull, Stayskull, I believe. Mm. But anyway, like these guys that you know have very measured approach to American soccer and like know know the game here domestically they all kind of had this this take that was similar to mine where it's like it hasn't been 
bad from Burhalter. Like it's been a fine showing. They make it out of the group. Bravo. You lose to you lose to the Netherlands. And now it's time to have like a fresh approach to the 2026 cycle. Cause I think we've seen time and time again, both in the US and with other national teams, where multiple cycles multiple world cup cycles for a manager goes sour. Like at the end of 2014, every single American was like, this is the start of something like this loss to Belgium is only the beginning. Like look out in 2018 because the U S is going even further. And we didn't even qualify for that world <laughs> cup. Like Klinsman yeah. was gone before the end of qualifying. And we were back to Bruce arena who while being our most successful like national team manager ha- had the height of his success in 2002 like that is the level that we you know we were really like just playing the classics and um to me any team that gets caught in that multiple cycle i mean we've seen it with italy we've seen it with uh Spain, we saw it with Germany, like Vicente del Bosque stuck around, like he was around for one too many cycles. Like Yogi Love was around for maybe two too many, like he was around for at least one too many cycles. Um, And then his impact on this team in terms of, uh, in this Germany team in terms of like player pool and who is leaned on, kind of to Christian's point about Mexico, where it's like, we're still bringing... Like, why is Thomas Muller still here? Like, why is Manuel Neuer still the starting goalkeeper? Like, there's all kinds of questions that where you're like, why aren't we refreshing our look at our player pool? And when you've got, this is my like long road to get to, when you have a fixed pool of players, the bottom line is that every once in a while, like relationships are going to be formed there's going to be opinions from a manager on who can do the job, like in their system, play their style, do these things. That doesn't mean that that manager has the style that can get the most out of the pool that fits the players that exist in the pool doesn't mean that he builds relationships or makes decisions the right way about the right players. And those things can, can wear to the point of, you know, a player not making an impact for the national team who under a different manager may have been a crucial part of it. And I think for Burhalter and for this U S player pool, where we have a lot of players in 2026, they will be in their prime. Like guys who are young for this World Cup are going to be in their prime. And we have this new crop coming up. And I think we need someone to take a fresh look at the pool, a fresh look at what is available, the guys coming up into the, you know, entering that senior level um, and be able to build a, a fresh like four-year approach for like what does success at 2026 you know world cup 2026 look like and and i just think if you give it to burr again there's gonna be somebody at that world cup who is important now 
who shouldn't be important to the team in four years who will still be there. And that's where I like, that's where I'm like, we've got to be able to like be unsentimental when it comes to these things and, and accept the fact that maybe there's someone who can either get more out of the pool or have like kind of the right view of, of what the top level of this pool actually can achieve. So, so do I don't it, think they re should renew him. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. But what do you think about it, Christian? As a... <laughs> feels like in conclusion, um, I know, <laughs> but um, I, I I think that a lot of what I'm not a lot of, but what I'm seeing a lot of, um, is as is kind of like like Burhalter apologists and like. And and it it just it astounds me because I can't believe that people are saying this is like, well, like who else is gonna like who else is better? It's like I don't know, but like does that mean that you should settle? Like <laughs> you're not like I, you're you're not some like <laughs> they're about to catch some strays, but. You're not Qatar, like <laughs> this. Like, oh like, man! You have. I'm back now, and I deleted all the Qatar apps from my phone, so <laughs> I, I can gonna... say whatever I want about <laughs> they them. They can't. They can't get me now. <laughs> they can't find me. Um, <clears throat> but like, like, how is that your mentality as a fan? Like, I just don't understand. Like, well, like. This is about as good as we can do, so why, like, why are we upset about, like, why do you want more? It's like, there's, there's, I, I don't know that there's, like, this large pool of candidates that are better, you know, and I don't know what better means at this point. Um, but to what Phil said, I think it's just about trying something different. Like, this is supposed to be, like, the golden generation like these are very very good players you know relative to not and actually not just relative to us like standards like they're really good players i i don't think that there have been this many like european players who are making an impact in their european clubs in one like us side as far as back as i can remember you know mm -hmm. watching a, a us team so why are you going to take the risk of wasting it? You know, it's it's we're you're going to end up looking if not in this World Cup then in 2030 this is going to be like we're going to be the 2022 Belgium in, in that you have these fantastic players being coached by a manager who does has no business being there anymore. Um and I think that I think that that is what will happen if if we get if, if Burhalter comes back. Um I just think it it just needs a refresh. It needs a refresh and you know just based off of talent alone, just be, based off of the talent on the team alone, I can't imagine that any other decision would have a worse outcome.
you know, at the very least, it's the same. But who's going to argue that, oh, we should have brought Berhalter back and he would have done better? Because I think this is the best he can do. So why not just take the risk and, and it's not even a risk, at least I don't think to me. Why not just make the smarter move and try something different? Because the uh, we talked about, and I think one of the main one of the main points uh, that you may bring up is that there's an element too to Burhalter's tenure where you know, like the old saying goes, the uh, the devil's greatest trick was you know convincing him, convincing you that he doesn't exist. Burhalter's greatest trick is that the U.S. Pl- he convinced us all that the U.S. player pool doesn't have any number nines. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's just one of many things that really has chopped my hide about this for Halter. And he uh, really said that, like, he came out (laughs) after the Netherlands, was it after the Netherlands game or before the Netherlands game? And he's like, we don't have a guy. We don't have a Memphis Depay, right? Isn't that what yeah? yeah. <laughs> Memphis, which, by the way, Memphis Depay is not a striker. So no. <laughs> anyway, there's like levels to this. Um <sighs> I mean, I echo everything you guys said, and I, if I did want to be devil's advocate just a little bit, I mean, I think that there are people, I mean, it's a cliche in life, like, there are people that are in your life for certain reasons at certain times, but they don't have to be there the entire time. I think it's the same thing with Greg Berhalter. I think he's done what was asked of him post-2018 failure, which is rebuild the side with young players, um, recruit more talent to the pool that are eligible and he did do Yunus Musa um Serginio Dest you know players like that Cameron Carter Vickers what have you like that's great you know finding those dual nationals that that do play at um a high level in Europe um and and so yeah we've got like the names in this side that we'd like to see for the most part I mean we're still I think we're all still really salty about Ricardo Pepe but that's for another day (laughs) but uh, yeah that's kind of where i'm at at with it is like i think his cycle has ended you know you've taken you've you've got us to qualify you we've won two trophies in Concacaf, and now we've made it out of the group stage check 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 goodbye (laughs) like because we need to take the next step and it showed in the netherlands game that we cannot take the next step with him he is too easily outcoached tactically and if you want to be successful in those bigger competitions and again with what the point that phil was making of a, a limited pool like you have to work to with this limited pool of players you better make sure that your tactics are on point because you can't go by the player that you need to make everything work you have to make it work with what you have and so that's why i think uh, and not only that you need that tactical brian mind but on top of that you don't spend nearly as much time with these players as their club coaches do mm-hmm. so you have to get that message across quick yeah right and be and be you know especially in in-game situations be more um adept i mean i just think louis van hall like embarrassed him to be honest you know it's it's and i didn't expect us to win the game to be honest i still think and I've I've kind of argued with this with people who are like, no, I think U.S. are on paper as good as the Netherlands. I don't believe that. I think the Netherlands is still a better team than us, you know, man for man, slightly. Mm-hmm. But um, it I do think it should have been more competitive. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that we went out is annoying. Now in 2026, I think the bare minimum is that we should be able to win one knockout match. 
Um, and so, yeah. And the, the other thing about the Bear Halter news that is really just like crazy to me is like, there's an angle of like, well, it seems like he's kind of angling for a European club job. And it's like, from who? Like, <laughs> who is trying to do that? Like, I have, like, come outside. I just want to talk. Who is <laughs> interviewing Greg Berhalter on the continent of Europe? I want to speak. Like, I don't get that. I really don't. He would be exposed to an yeah. insane degree unless it's in like the Cypriot first division, which I'm sorry to Cyprus, but like <laughs> it was the first small nation I thought of. Um, Ammonia. Uh, yeah. Omnonia. Nicosia. Nis- <laughs> Niswa. Yeah, Nicosia. Like <laughs> catching strays. They're a Champions League club. Catching Let me strays. not. I'm saying that. Um, <laughs> Or also, Europa, Europa League, I don't know. You I mentioned forget. you mentioned him recruiting Serginho Dest, and like, man, we have we didn't get a chance to talk about him getting cooked like a stroop waffle out there by Daily Blind, <laughs> um, by his home nation. Like, they did not have to do all that. Um, but what, uh, yeah. Anyways, they, they didn't. <laughs> the I yeah, and I think I think to to your point too. There's an element of like he's there's a tactical thing, and there's a tactical thing of like. If Greg Berhalter, like he doesn't get the time with the players. So in theory, he is watching all of these games that are being played by players in the American player pool and trying to find the guys that can do what he needs them to do or finding like watching guys and being like, how can I get him to replicate that in my team? Right. And the one that stands out, and I know that Pepe is obviously like the big point of contention, but Jordan Pifok is like the talking point because it's like he is scoring goals for Union Berlin, like a team that is playing exceedingly well in the Bundesliga, like far above expectations. And the fact that we couldn't at any point like replicate that with the U.S., it that to me leads to a different level of like is he just not able to like get across to some of these guys and from the um from the in-game management side of it which is like what the an international manager needs to be like best at because it is your biggest way to impact tournaments is in-game management like you're going to win and you're going to live and die by what adjustments you make in these knockout games like the fact that against uh wales against iran like and against the netherlands like (laughs) there was a either a change or a tweak that the other that the other manager made that absolutely turned the game and made it close nervy or you know in the wales case like wales equalize and it was you know wales Kiefer Moore on for Dan James game totally changes like us chasing things like, and Wales looked horrible in both of their other group games, like did not look effective against either Iran or England, but they looked at their best in that second half against the, the U S and Iran like had us under, like obviously they held on and all those things, but had us like absolutely under, pressure for the last you know 20 minutes of that game and then the Netherlands like from basically that missed 
Pulisic chance, like that was like from then the Netherlands never looked like out of control of with what was going on. So yeah, I just think there's a lot of, and to Christian's point, like there's, there's a safety kind of feeling of like, well, we know what we get with Greg Berhalter, but the thing is, is that exiting 2014 with Jurgen Klinsmann, we were like, Hey, only way to go is up like progress, progress, progress. And it went so horribly wrong. Like basically from the jump of that cycle and we didn't qualify for the world cup. So I think like when you say, ah, like, but what if it gets worse? It's like, well, what if it gets worse under Burhalter? Like what if it turns bad without changing the manager? You could do these, you know, hypotheticals all day. So I don't know. At the end of the day, like if there is a, a person that can get something more out of this pool, which I believe that there must be, <laughs> then like you, you have to be able to have the courage to make that decision and not just say, well, this was pretty good. So like, let's do this again. Yeah. Shall we get on to the listener questions? And we should talk a, li- <laughs> a bit more about something not Greg Berhalter. Yeah. Not rage inducing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, so at Eric Bauer uh, at eBow 27 on Twitter said some old timers in the football world were real salty with Brazil celebrating and dancing after scoring goals. Do you think there is a fine line between players having fun and players being disrespectful to the opponent? Also, why must old players be so salty and angry all the time? I mean, Mika, they had some fun after that, after that, uh, the big win against South Korea. There were, you know, some choreographed sort of like uh, dances and things that uh, the players pulled out. I guess, do you think it's disrespectful for Brazilians to bust that sort of thing out? Or is it, this is just what, this is just what goes on. No, I don't think it's disrespectful. What I will say is that Brazil knew that this would not these dances would not end up on football images that precede unfortunate events. I think that's <laughs> the craziest part is that they were dancing after one goal. It's like you knew it was, <laughs> was going to be a freaking route. And so it was. Um I mean teacher dancing, that's a little like next level. I've never seen that. Um <laughs> But you know what? It's it's their culture, and then they're having fun, and that's what we watch this for, presumably. I mean, uh, Eric is probably referring to Roy Keane absolutely having an aneurysm over over them dancing. Um, you know, he's a proper football man, and what and all that. But uh, no, I don't think it's disrespectful. Is there? You know, can you be disrespectful on the pitch? For sure. Like. I think Grand Shaka and Jordan Shakiri putting the Albanian eagle on their chest against Serbia, like that is low key, like or high key, disrespectful. Like we can, t- you know, that I think there's levels to this, right? Mm-hmm. But even that is like, I'm sorry, as a neutral, is kind of entertaining. Like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think and, dancing, like, and justified, some would argue also, see, but <laughs> sure, right, right, exactly, and that's you know that that's multi layered, but a little bit yeah. of dancing, like this. Yeah. It's not hurting anybody. And yeah, it's, you know, fans dance. I mean, Senegal, their fans are like renowned for their dancing and they didn't even stop when they were getting hammered by England. So fair play to them. But um, 
yeah i i don't find it disrespectful i just i find it cold kind of like you knew this was gonna go like <laughs> even better and better <laughs> that you're dancing after one goal but i mean yeah i don't have a problem with it i mean christian it's just it's just a thing like if brazil scores the goals that they've been scoring to at this world cup like and especially in this game against south korea I mean, they're justified to, to celebrate some of these. Like they're uh, they're they've been putting on a show. I mean, and I hate you know. I like I said, Richarlison. I never thought I'd be putting respect on the on the man's name, but he's he's been balling out. I gotta say, just because Mika I, Mika said it, like one time for the Senegal fans, because man, those guys are a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's those guys were always both. having a good time. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, like Mika said, like there's disrespectful ways to celebrate, and that's not what was happening. Like, it's not like they were finding like the the shoot Switzerland, right? I'm forgetting who they played. Oh, no, that South was Korea. Portugal, South, South Korea. Korea. Sorry, yeah. yeah. It's not like they were like running over to the Korean fans in the stands and like dancing in front of them. You know, like there's ways to do it disrespectfully, and and like Mika said, that's not what they were doing. And like I am just not a fan at all of like old school stuff like that. Like it's one of the reasons why I and and I like baseball, but that's one of the reasons why I hate baseball is because there's so much of that in baseball. Um, and so, like, to me, it's like, if you don't want them to dance, then don't let them score goals. Like, it's that simple. And if you, if they score goals and they're going to dance, and if you don't want them to dance four times then don't let them score four times, (laughs) it's, it's all very simple to me, very black and white. Can I just share like a commuting thought that I was having? Cause I knew that we were going to talk about this tonight. Do it. (laughs) What? To my knowledge, why has no player ever twerked before? They have. have well, at they? least in the NWSL, I, have. I will okay. say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I was only thinking men's football. but <laughs> And it made its way over. I don't remember into what league, and maybe it wasn't even soccer, but it was like a pretty, like, it went, like, viral. Did it? Um, oh, man. I'm, I forget. I'm I'll have to send not paying it to... attention. I'll have to send it to you, but I forget what team she plays for, but her name is Lola Bonta. And um she okay. did a whole thing where she like she scored and then she like like started like limping over to the sidelines and then she stops limping and then she just starts throwing it in a circle. <laughs> <laughs> Sensational. Yes. Please send that but to yeah, me. I'll, I'll have to share that me. with you. I'll have to find it on Twitter and share it with you. But it it's happened and it made its way over. Someone else did it, but it might not have been in soccer. It might have been someone scored a touchdown or something and did it, but interesting. Okay. Got but it. it should be to your point it should be more uh should prevalent. be more uh yes, more prevalent. <laughs> Normalize it. Normalize yeah. Put me on the field. Put me on the field and I'll do it. I wouldn't even have to score. <laughs> I'll just run to the sideline in the middle of the match and start throwing ass. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the long and the short is... And, like, the, these old pros, like, always act as if, you know, 
the the game was some sort of gentlemanly thing like when they were like yeah, straight up fuck Roy Keane like are you <laughs> breaking kidding me? people's legs and shit <laughs> yeah. like that like fighting on the pitch and stuff like that's fine but like don't dance you know because it it brings <laughs> disrepute or whatever um yeah no total total horse shit um so <laughs> Uh, the other one of the other questions we got was at, from at Renee in El Paso on Twitter, um, and Renee said, uh, "Any players that have played themselves into a big summer move, but not might not live up to the hype, um, sort of in the James Rodriguez mold. Um, do you guys think there are any players who are b- going to be overvalued as a as a uh, outcome of this World Cup. I know you mentioned Chavez, maybe Christian being being one where someone takes a punt, but is anyone else coming to mind in terms of players who may play their price tag beyond like what it actually should be? I, it's this one was hard when I looked at the outline because I feel like a lot of the studs so far in this tournament have been the people you have expected them to be. You know, sure. there there isn't like a 2018 Mbappe that that I've seen. You know, there's not a some 18, 19 year old who's absolutely just like blowing the doors off of everyone. Um so so that was a little bit harder and so I I don't know for sure but and and this and I this was my mark just this was my choice just because I and this could be completely wrong because I'm saying this because I've never, literally never heard of him before this tournament. Um, and maybe he does have the talent to back it up, but I know that Cody Gakpo is getting a lot of um, a lot of a lot of play uh, in this tournament. And strictly my absolutely uninformed opinion, just based off of the fact that I have never heard of him, and it's because I don't follow like Dutch football. Um, as I think that maybe that might be the one that, that comes up because he has been, I think the most notable of like the, of the non a listers that's been in this tournament. So like, as far as betting odds go, that would probably be the one to look for as far as a bust. Yeah. Interesting. I I think, I think it is it. Well, and it's so funny how world cup world cups are such a small sample size and can warp expectations beyond what they should be. And I think, I think Gakpo is a good shout in that, like if, you know, Manchester United fans, cause that's where it's been rumored that he's going, which, uh, for those who didn't see <laughs> Virgil van Dyke's comments, I, I quite enjoyed the, the shade, uh, when it was, uh, what did they say? Oh, uh, do you think that Gakpo is is getting the uh, or could succeed at the Real Madrids or Manchester Uniteds of the world? And Van Dyke was like, "Do you think Manchester United are at the same level as Real Madrid?" <laughs> 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 and uh, <laughs> so he, uh, but he did say he's ready for the next step. But if your expectation at that next club is he's scoring a goal a game, that's not even what he's doing like in Holland. So like just managing expectation. And I think there's other players in the world cup potentially who, if you're looking at this small sample size, you maybe say, yeah, they're kind of overperforming what they would do over the course of a season. Well, I have a shout then 
Go for it. I mean, it. if we want to get real, real small in the fact that like one match might have tripled this man's value, it's Gonzalo Ramos. Would... <laughs> we had the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, okay, I I wanted to do this shout justice, so I dug into to him and. I mean, he's 21 years old. Um, obviously, Portugal International scored that hat trick against Switzerland, which is that brings him to four goals in four caps because he had a, a goal against Nigeria in a friendly. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, he is having a breakout season for club and country. Um, he helped Benfica qualify for the uh, Champions League knockout stages. He had some goals against Michelin, against. The Dino Kiev, and then he scored against Maccabi Haifa to ensure Benfica would get through to the round of 16 and finish as group winners. So he's been doing it a bit under the radar, um, but I think this hat trick against Switzerland certainly has allowed him to enter the the fray as like a, a name that might be thrown around for a big transfer. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's. it seems to me like he's been lethal at every level of the game that he's played at. I mean... He was in that Portugal U19s in that U21 side that uh, finished as finalists in their European competitions. Um, and this season for Benfica, you know, stepping into the shoes of Darwin Nunez. Um, nine goals, one assist in 11 matches. And that's from an XG of 8.9. And he doesn't take penalties. So, you know, I think Roger Schmidt is really getting a lot out of this. This player seems like he's a player that really is... Um, a coach's player and that he's really uh, he follows instructions um, I think he even scored at Anfield in the Champions League last season quarterfinal he did um, so <laughs> so yeah it I was mean, like he's... why you gotta bring up old shit it was fine it was fine <laughs> it, it turned out fine <laughs> you, yes it ended up being fine um, so yeah I mean he Gonzalo Ramos he's been doing it for the club and now he he explodes onto the scene for country um, in a Cristiano Ronaldo less Portugal side for, against Switzerland and I mean it's hard to look past many players I guess in this Portugal side that seem to be thriving without that CR7 size specter over them um, like Joao Felix right who already has had that gigantic move the 126 million uh, Euro to Atletico Madrid and he did help them win the title uh, in 2021 um, so you know it, he's been good for Atleti but it hasn't necessarily been straightforward so I, I just look at this Portugal side and I think that there are a lot of people that 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 teams will maybe want to take a punt on Ramos being the one that could end up not panning out if he if he moves too soon as I do think there are things in his game to improve but Joao Felix being the one that maybe is like a hot commodity for the loan market this winter or something. Um, but, you know, given the outlay that Atletico Madrid paid for him, like that'll be very tricky to to justify for the selling club and the buying club, I think. Um, but he's playing as best we've seen him in many moons, I think. Um, and yeah, he looks he looks liberated um, with with this Portugal side. So. The two of them have jumped out to me, I think. Yeah, I think it's funny you mentioned Benfica because I think uh, Benfica players... Benfica has been making a ton of player sales. I think they will make another... They are about to catch a gigantic bag because Ramos <laughs> Ramos was valued at $24 million according to Transfer Marked, which obviously is not like accurate for what would be paid, but he's valued at $24 million. I guarantee you when this update... That was as of November 1st. I guarantee mm. you if you looked at like if they update 
post-World Cup, I guarantee you that's going to shoot through the roof. Another Benfica player that I think is in for a very big move and will be, as such, attached. There will be a lot of expectations attached. Enzo Fernandez. Um, Ooh, yeah. The Argentinian um, midfielder who obviously scored a couple of – well, scored a crucial goal um, for for Argentina in that Mexico game and then um, has been now kind of handed the keys in many ways like to that midfield uh, for, for Scaloni. Um, so, yeah, I think it's – I think he's another one where big, big price tag and maybe to a, a little – potential for misalignment if he ends up at a club where the expectations are um for a 21 year old he's going to come in and and be this like hugely transformative like uh goal scoring midfielder because um he does not score that frequently (laughs) and like i think it's just important for people to know the types of players they get because you know you think a guy scores one goal in four World Cup games. You're like, this guy's a goal scorer, but he only has one goal in the league for Benfica. So it's like just mm. knowing who you're getting. But Enzo, I think, is in for a big move at some point. Um, will he live up to the hype? We'll see. Um, and uh, but yeah, to to uh, Christian's point earlier, I do think it has been a World Cup of like bigger names um potentially performing at the level but um now that we are through the round of 16 and we had that that round play out obviously we're, we won't go game by game but I did want to get from you guys um you know your favorite moment of the round whether that was a goal whether that was a, a specific result uh whether that was a specific moment for a player um but what was your pick of the round of 16 in terms of your your favorite moment um from what was a a pretty uh pretty interesting round of games I'll go first I guess I mean I think it's I think Brazil's third goal against South Korea is going to live long in my memory. Um, Again, we talked about how Brazil completely routed the Koreans, unfortunately for them. Um, But the third goal is just pure Samba football. It's scored by Richarlison, who does not look like the weight of the number nine shirt for Brazil is, is weighing him down at all, really. I mean, he looks super, super confident. He always has been. Uh, very confident in his abilities and uh, that's translating to Brazil's benefit right now. Um, and the assist is by Thiago Silva on the edge of the box, like first time pass into, uh, into Richarlison's path after he was just dribbling the ball with his head. (laughs) Um, so I mean, like, it's just, just so entertaining, so fun. It is what you think this Brazil side is historically, right? Cause I think Brazil, you know, as as the modern game has changed, I think they have become more functional, right? But we're seeing some of that like samba style come out in in some of these games where they've got that comfortable lead and and they're just ready to take the the opponent completely apart. And so this third goal for me was just beautiful. Yeah. Um. And yeah. Uh. I think that was a really fun and 
technically high quality moment in the round of 16 for me. Any, uh, I want, I, I want you to go Phil. Cause I <laughs> have like three that I feel oh, like nice. I should share and, and I don't want to step on, on any of yours. So because sure. I have three, I think you should, should go. Well, I, gosh, I mean, there are, there are a handful of, of goals and moments that I, that I really did enjoy about this round of games. Um, it was nice from a, from an American with German background. It was nice in many ways entering the rest of the round of 16 after the U S lost from a neutral perspective with no skin in the game, um, because I could just watch the football and enjoy it. But I have to, I have to specifically give flowers to Morocco, um, because, and specifically, Ashraf Hakimi for have just having the absolute stones to step up and take a panenka against your home country, like a Moroccan born in Madrid to Moroccan parents come comes up through Real Madrid's Academy played for Madrid. Um, and to send Spain home with a panenka and not just it, it wasn't even a panenka in like the the classic sense where it it it's lofted real high or anything like that. It's a it's a dribbler like it it's it's a dribbled panenka basically. Like it it barely crawls over the line and it's just like one. I don't know if I've ever seen somebody take a penalty like that in a game of that magnitude, but it's also kind of encapsulated how Morocco's approach this tournament, which is just without fear, I guess. Like, they have their game plan, and people can say what they want. I know Rodri, Rodri certainly, like, had his say about, like, what he thought of Morocco's, you know, defensive tactics. But I think the reality is, like, they know who they are. They play, they've played, like, a very impressive game um, throughout throughout this tournament. And despite being you know less of a possession team the chances they create and the goals they score like are are really good so I'm just like I, I don't know I'm, I'm enjoying watching this Morocco team and in this World Cup having a team you know from the Arab world North Africa um, although I mean their coach was pretty like uh adamant about the fact that they are like playing for Africa and they were, you know, they, they see themselves as, as African first. And, um, and so they, uh, yeah, them, them carrying, carrying the, uh, the banner, I guess, in that way is just such a, such a cool thing. And it's highlighting for me, I, you know, what hasn't been talked about enough in the coverage from my perspective is the fact that Morocco is like a, a crazy, footballing nation in the sense that like they have produced this like fantastic generation of players. They'll continue to produce great players because of Moroccans like spread across Europe and like just that heritage is, has like moved to a lot of different places. But in Morocco, like one of the, craziest derbies in world football bar none the Casablanca derby is like the craziest thing that you'll yeah. see like why dad versus uh um 
oh my god why am i blanking um is it is it raja, raja. Yeah. yeah raja versus why that casablanca like unbelievable like just google the casablanca derby the videos you will find like they will do multiple tifos and multiple like stadium sized displays during the derby it is insane like the pyro everything just like off the charts and it is a country that doesn't really get the credit for me for being as like intensely a footballing country you know as literally anywhere you know in terms of the passion of the fans and and uh the buy-in there so anyways like it was great to see morocco get the reward um and uh i guess in that penalty shootout, obviously huge shout out to Hakimi, but but also to to Bonu because um, a goalkeeper who has played in Spain for most of his professional career, shutting out Spain in a penalty shootout is I mean it's insane. I don't think anyone would have would have bet on him making you know two saves um, out of out of three penalties and you know one off the post so. Um, yeah, it was just an unbelievable performance from Morocco. And I, I love seeing a North African team, uh, make it this far, um, into a quarterfinal. And I mean, once you're in the quarterfinals, it's like anything is possible. Um, and of the draw, obviously Portugal looked insane against Switzerland and there is every chance that they pick this Morocco team apart. But I think of the teams in the draw, Morocco will actually feel like Portugal is one that that they might be able to get after as long as they they play their game and and um and don't immediately concede uh rockets you know like like the Swiss did <laughs> but um but yeah so Morocco's advancement and just like the scenes from that and all of the narrative around Morocco's advancement just uh yeah that's what I was enjoying about the round of 16 I have I just have goals. Um <laughs> I have three goals that I thought were fantastic. Um sadly this one's gonna sting for Mika, but uh the Parasitch header um against Japan <sighs> was like just like it's how you draw up like the, if you have to take a header from that distance, like where else are you gonna too. put it except smack dab on the bottom corner there? Um, it was just a beautiful, beautiful header. Um, on that same note, uh, Pepe's goal, um, like, I didn't know that that man could still jump that high. Because <laughs> he got air. Like, <laughs> hashtag salmon season. Because <laughs> he got up for sure. When and, I saw his I name on the team sheet, I genuinely thought, like, did his son get called up? Cause like <laughs> there's no way this man is still playing professional football. And Did you call was. him the bald Brazilian Miko? Is that you? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> he He's is been like Brazilian, a naturalized right? Portuguese citizen for like years and years. I'm yeah. just being salty. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, I, just did not believe that he could he could get up as high as he needed to for that one and but um but the last one that was just just an absolute rocket was um i don't know how to say his name but it was the Cor the south korean goal 
um, the one that they managed to score from like that was a great goal eight yeah. or ten yards outside the box and he just smashes it. Um, it was Sun Ho Pike. Sun Ho Pike, yeah, yes. yeah. Um, and so that was probably my favorite goal just to watch. Obviously, it didn't mean much in the grand scheme of things, but man, what a rocket that was! Those are my my three favorites from from this round. Yeah. Fair. The quick shout, I think, to to uh, to Mbappe for his first goal against Poland oh. was stupid. Like, I don't know how it... that one just made me mad. <laughs> it's like, how are you gonna let him have that much time on the ball? Like, yeah, yeah I was <laughs> anyone that he should have like four players around him, no matter what, everywhere on the field, no matter what the score is. And, and I guess he just like it was like. <laughs> It was like the the cat like playing with their food, like right. just like <laughs> swatting the mouse around before they devour it. So, uh, <laughs> one quick shout, Mika, t- for, to Olivier Giroud because uh, France's all-time leading scorer now and uh, assisted on that opener by Kylian Mbappe, the man most likely to in the future break Giroud's record. Yeah, I think I think Giroud is just babysitting that that uh, accolade for now. But I mean, he's been fantastic for for France, and what a career he's had. You know, um, I mean, he didn't. I don't think he started playing for France until like his mid twenties. So, yeah, insane, absolutely insane. Yeah, but all good shouts. Well, we do have the quarterfinals coming up, and uh, you know, we won't break down each of these matches in detail, but I'm interested in who who you guys are are picking to go through and just a little bit on the why of uh, why we think they'll go through. So we'll just start tomorrow, 10 a.m. Um, some people will probably be listening to this podcast as it's uh, getting ready to kick off. Uh, well, I say 10 a.m. Eastern time, um, so 8 8 a.m. Uh, Mountain Croatia Brazil. Uh, what do we think? I think I think it's Brazil. Um, I think smart money's on Brazil. I think Croatia. They they look tired. They look real tired, and I just don't know how many rabbits are still in the Croatian hat, so to speak. <laughs> um, and Brazil just have so much quality and strength and depth as well that you know, as Croatia starts to tire, they can start bringing on Rodrigo and. Um, just players like that. Um, it's just insane what Brazil have at their disposal. Um, and yeah, they just they'll be very confident having just taken South Korea apart. Um, and Croatia are, yeah, I think they're gonna run into the Brazilian buzzsaw. But I mean, if it would also not surprise me if Croatia somehow find a way. But uh, yeah, I'm going with Brazil for this one. Yeah, same, and, and for the exact same reasons. I just think the depth of Brazil is just too much for for almost anyone left in the pool. Um, there's, 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 I think, one other team left that, that I think has the the potential to to knock off Brazil, but Croatia is, you, you're not that guy. <laughs> you don't got the facilities for that big man. I, uh, <laughs> I yeah. Dejan Lovren is still starting for Croatia. I, I, I don't think they're going to. The 
the shout though, I will say a player who probably has played himself into a, a decent su- summer move, if not a winter move is, is Gavardial, um, who Red Bull player, like, um, and, uh, he's one that I think a lot of people have, have begun to hype up these last few rounds, but yeah, yeah, I think, uh, Brazil just, they've just got too much firepower and, they're just playing with too much confidence, whereas Croatia's game is going to basically be predicated on ideally not conceding at all and going 120 minutes goalless with all the way to penalties and uh, or trying to sneak a goal um, and somehow hold back the Brazilian onslaught. So, yeah, I just don't see it happening um, over the course of 90 minutes. Um. The late game tomorrow, Netherlands, Argentina. Um, so we get a couple European, South American, you know, matchups to, to start the day. I will say from an aesthetic uh, angle, um, Netherlands, Netherlands orange versus the uh, Alba Celeste of the, of the Argentinians. Is this one of the most... Uh, like aesthetically pleasing matchups in world football. I think the Dutch kit needs to be a little more orange, but otherwise, yes. <laughs> um, this one I really like. I, my my bracket before the tournament has Argentina winning the whole damn thing. As we know, Argentina have had some hiccups here with the loss to Saudi Arabia and then having to really really battle against Mexico. Um, I just. I don't know. Like, I think the Netherlands look a little bit more like cohesive and like Van Hall really has a plan for, for every opponent. And I think that their group was arguably harder. They had the African champions in that group. Um, but they also had Qatar as well. So I, I don't know. Um, whereas Argentina, I think that, I mean, they, they just came through against Australia. Like I, I think Australia put up a valiant effort, but, um, you know, I think they're always going to be beating those, uh, and then Poland as well. Um, so this one is really hard. I, I think I'm going to continue to pick Argentina to honor my bracket, but really like, I think the Netherlands can beat them. I really do. So this is, I think this is the, the tie of, of the, the round. Yeah, I agree. I think in this one, um, I think that the Netherlands will probably control the game. Um, but I think it will go 120 because there will be some, some messy magic in there somewhere um, to, to equalize somewhere in the match. Because I think that Netherlands will probably score first and, and sit back, I think. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to come out flying. I just think they're going to happen to get the goal just because they're going to have so much control of the game. Uh, but I think it'll go to penalties in the end, and I think, in in at least in my head, I think the magic just continues, uh, because like Mika, I also have Argentina winning, um, <laughs> and I think that you know, as as we know in any sort of like tournament format, it does just require that little bit of of magic, you know, the when it's single elimination in in especially in a game like soccer where it's so unfair that you know one moment can can define the whole match I, I think that it requires magic and i'm just in my head that that's that's how it continues to go for argentina in this one 
there is uh there is word that Rodrigo DePaul may have suffered an injury behind clo- in a behind closed doors training session and uh it was leaked. Uh Yo, Messi's bodyguard and <laughs> might not be available. That is and not Scaloni, good. Scaloni reportedly flipped out like because uh it wasn't um meant obviously like it happened in a closed training session so they were hoping to keep it on the dl um but chance that rodrigo DePaul misses the match so we'll see could be mind games though could be mind games um because they're making a real show of like him hmm. potentially being injured so um the the thing i'll say about about this match is like we talked about Netherlands US and I think a lot of the discourse in the like you know in the aftermath of that has been like well Van Hall just outmanaged and and outfoxed Greg Berhalter right Lionel Scaloni is also he's a very inexperienced relatively inexperienced manager like this is really his first kind of like senior gig and he's only been in charge for 56 matches so I mean, the the reality is that this might be one of his first like really big tactical tests. And mm. the tactics for Argentina up until now have not they've been pretty vibey. Like they've been pretty just go out there and like do your thing. And so I I do worry in that matchup like if you assume Van Hall is going to get the better of him tactically, does Argentina have enough like just on the basis of how talented they are and by virtue of having like this team of destiny feeling because of like Messi and all this stuff like is that a weight that holds them down and makes it even worse or is that something that lifts them because I think unfortunately Van Hall's plan is probably going to be very good Um, (laughs) and that's just like the assumption we can make um so yeah my concern is that it could be this could be a a really tall task for scaloni to figure out um tactically and i guess we'll see what his what his chops are like uh but i i think the the quality factor and the chaos factor of some of argentina's players though are are that is an equalizer in many ways for a, t- a good tactical approach because you can you know line up however you want and sometimes Lionel Messi just doesn't doesn't care about that and I think Alvarez has also been a nice addition in terms of adding a little unpredictability along that front line so um so yeah I think Argentina have some stuff going for them I still like you guys said I I, I still think they win but I do think the Netherlands will I think they can get at them um, and it's going to be a tough one for, for both Um, Netherlands also have less to, to lose, I guess like quarterfinals is probably fine for them from uh, expectations perspective. But um, on Saturday, two big quarterfinals as well. Morocco, Portugal, the first of them. Um, What do you guys think to, uh, do Portugal march on um, given their smashing of the Swiss? 
Oh man. This is tough. I I I think this will be I don't know. I don't know. Damn, this one's hard. I think I think I'll say Portugal. Um if Fernando Santos continues to bench Cristiano Ronaldo. Um <laughs> because I think it's going to take I I don't think you can have any passengers against this Morocco side. Um, you, you just can't because they are willing to work their socks off. So you have to have 11 men who can do that too. Um, so in that sense, I do give Portugal the edge if they don't, if they don't play Ronaldo, cause they've got a lot of really talented, but also hardworking players in Bernardo da Silva, in, uh, Diego Simeone coached, uh, João Felix in some situations, Gonzalo Ramos as well, also decent off the ball. Um, and then, you know, the stalwart at the back, Pepe. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I will give Portugal the slight edge, but, like, Morocco is... They seem destined for something <laughs> huge. And I think, it, uh, you know, having made it to the quarterfinal is huge enough. But, um, yeah, I'll just give the slight edge to Portugal. Yeah, I, I'm also picking Portugal with the same caveat that Mika had as far as making sure that Ronaldo is, is on the bench. Um, and I think that it's just going to come down to their, them Portugal being too much for, for Morocco. You know, you can, you can play really good um, defensive, sound, just fundamental football for 90 minutes, but when you have all the weapons that that portugal has you know you're asking a lot from from that team to stop that and so um you know i don't think that they're gonna stop portugal from shooting the ball so eventually only one of them has to go in in the end um and and that's what i think it's gonna be i don't think it's gonna be a, a bloodbath by any means but it's just gonna come down to like the straw that that breaks the camel's back no like no pun intended for the north african team <laughs> <laughs> but um canceled i i think <laughs> that is hilarious i do think that that's what's going to happen i just think it's it's going to be too much and that morocco will put up a really really good fight um but it's just not going to last Come on, Phil, pick Morocco. So I, I am, uh, I will go out and I will pick, I will pick Morocco purely on, on hey. the emotional and just like, again, narrative is like on their side. Cause if they make a semifinal, like it, it's going to be through the roof. They do have, I think the thing that helps Morocco in this case is that they do have two genuinely like world-class fullbacks that will help pin back some of the wide attackers for Portugal because I, I think that's something that Switzerland struggled a little bit and I think you could you started to see kind of like the legs in Rodriguez like just aren't aren't at the level that they used to be so I think like having Mizrawi and, and and Hakimi from from the go is going to be big but it's going to come down ultimately to finishing and like Portugal has been unbelievable. Like they have been scoring at an unbelievable rate and maybe an unsustainable rate, which is like 
So you think like, okay, maybe some of these like some of these goals they've been scoring over the last couple of games, maybe they don't go in. But Morocco, on the other hand, has been like fluffing their lines on like some of these games where they have a chance to win. The Spain, you know, the Spain game is a great example. Like they they had a chance deep, deep in the game, like to win it right at the end, one on one with the keeper, and just hits it straight at the keeper. So I think like the finishing just has to be that like Morocco have to be at their best in terms of finishing their chances and Portugal have to like regress to the mean a little bit in terms of like, you know, Gonzalo Ramos on the turn doesn't smash it like top bins <laughs> past Jan Summer. <laughs> like some of these chances like may stop going in for Portugal, but I think they'll have to be finishing at a lower level and, uh, and Morocco will have to be at the top of their game and finish their chances. I will say Morocco probably do edge Portugal in the fans department as well. So yeah, and it is going to be. I mean, if it, the Spain game is any indication, it's going to be a cauldron. Like in mm-hmm. that stadium is going to be a Morocco. Taking all of Iberia. <laughs> the the re reconquista. Amazing. Um. The last of the quarterfinals is England-France, which feels like a classic matchup in many ways, but it almost... This this feels, based on England's perform- performance against Senegal and, uh, you know, France's win over Poland, both being, I guess, relatively straightforward, although there were maybe some shaky moments. Um, but England and France meeting now, this feels one, like, kind of a heavyweight game and maybe one that last World Cup would have happened in the semis, like, rather than in the quarterfinals. So um, what do you guys make of of England-France? And is, is Deschamps, like, does France just have too much or does this England side have something that, that they could pull something off against France? Okay. Um I think I'm going against my better judgment here. I'm going to pick England because I think this France team can be got at. I don't uh, if I'm not mistaken, they've not kept a clean sheet yet. If you target the side of the pitch that Teo Hernandez plays on, you will find space. Um that is if you can get away from piling onto Mbappe, right? I mean, He's obviously the danger man. Um, and and England, I think they've been quietly having like a solid World Cup. I mean, I think the, the you know, they smashed Iran. They, they had a pretty good game against the United States. If a little, you know, I think our, I think we were better than them, but they didn't concede while playing poorer than you would expect, but it was okay. Um, they, I mean, they they blew Wales away. Who did they play in the round of sixteen? I'm completely Senegal, but Senegal. and it's questionable, like because those couple of chances that Senegal had early, like there's a there's an alternate universe where England's like two nil down in the first like twenty minutes. Well, and that and that that is a very good point, but that is also kind of why I'm picking them. Is that I actually rate Jordan Pickford higher than I do Hugo Lloris in like a really um, crucial moment of a game like that. Like again, they've not. I don't think France have kept a clean sheet, so I just I think they can be gotten at. I think if you 
if you plan your game in the way that you're going to hit them right, like I think England can win. Um, I, I think that, you know, they have just as many weapons as France does, you know, Dembele, Giroud, Mbappe. Um, I mean, England have Foden, Saka, Bellingham. <laughs> like, you know, they're, they're stacked too. Uh, Rashford, who scored a couple goals at this tournament as well. So I will go England, I think. Jordan Henderson. Jordan, <laughs> yeah, late arriving. F- famous Number goal eight. scorer, Jordan Henderson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I, the other thing, though, is uh, like Portugal, I think England have to be brave. I think that they should really stick to that four at the back that they have been playing and not go three at the back. I think they've got to be brave um, to to win this game, and I think that they could do. There's so many English players that I dislike, so it's really hard for me to <laughs> to, to pick them, and I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. Uh, like I said, I, I'm going I'm against pi- my better judgment, but <laughs> I'm picking France for this one because um, I they're a lot like Argentina for me in in that I just think that the they're just so much scarier on paper. Like I. I'm much more concerned about, um, you know, Mbappe for one. I mean, how can you not be, right? I, I'm much more concerned about Mbappe, Giroud, Griezmann, Dembele than, than any four names from the England team that you can put up on me. And I know it's not all, you know, there's more to the game than, than just offensive threat. But I think that in the end... It seemed to me in, in the games that I've watched that in this tournament, when to to get to the final, it's going to come down to who's the most dangerous, who who's going to score the most goals. I don't think this year that it's going to be a you know a, a technical championship. I think it's going to be who has the most firepower, uh, and I think that that when it comes down to just that, that France has the edge. And also, like I said, I just don't want England to win. So um, for for those reasons, um, I'm I'm going with France. I mean, because who who wants to see Harry Kane win a football match? No one wants that. <laughs> it does um, it does make it tough to root for England. Um, when I I did appreciate in their game against Senegal, if they were going to knock Senegal out, at least it was people that I like, or you know people that I can Mm. root for scoring like either side of the Harry Kane goal. Obviously it's Jordan Henderson and then, and then, uh, Bukayo Saka. So like, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, but, uh, this is a really interesting one because, and I think because of the midfields, if, if Southgate is smart, like you said, and plays the four, three, three that they played against Senegal, like, I think, there's a really interesting tactical duel there where if Deschamps sticks with the 4-2-3-1 with Griezmann in the 10, he's asking Chuameni and Rabio to track, like to play two against three in midfield, which is really interesting. And we learn, we can learn a lot about like a few midfielders in a short period of time because we're going to learn can Declan Rice basically mark Antoine Griezmann man to man like six against 10 and can 
uh, Rabio and Chuameni keep enough tabs on Jude Bellingham to keep him from being like running the show the other way. And like that to me is a really interesting thing because Bellingham has always, he's been finding these like pockets throughout this world cup where he just pops up in the right place at the right time to receive the right pass to create the right next situation. And, um, I think it ends up being a, a tall task if there's three English bodies in midfield in possession for Chuameni and Rabio to handle like by themselves. So I think it's an interesting question of like, if you're Deschamps, do you keep Griezmann in a 10 or do you actually play with a six like to try to nullify England? But yeah, that's kind of my interesting thought is like France has been able to be top heavy in a lot of the matches they play because they are just the better side. Um, and no one and the way that Poland approached their match and the way that Poland play like France didn't need to be concerned about do we have a six because they're just like we need the four guys at the back to mark Robert Lewandowski and we'll be good like <laughs> like the whole back line just needs to track that dude you know whereas England there's a lot more it's yeah. a lot more happening between the lines so I'm I'm interested but I, my worry in terms of the excitement and interest of this game is that Southgate will go super conservative. He'll try to go super conservative and try to turn it into like just an attritional, like try to grind out a one nil type type match where I think what worked against Senegal was actually them and the players in a lot of ways, take making a decision to make the game about being dynamic and, and being on the front foot. So you, so I'm just, just to be clear, are you picking England? I'm <laughs> picking... like that's a nice speech, Phil. But who did you pick? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am. Um, I think I picked France, so I'll stay true to my to my original okay. pick and say France. But, um, but yeah, I think it's. I think we'll learn. We'll learn about about a lot about some individuals um, based on how they show up in their kind of like assignments. Um, but I don't know. I just don't trust Southgate to make it exciting. And I think in a, or to take risks. And I think in a match where they're up against one of the, you know, teams with the most firepower, as Christian said, like if they don't take risks, I think they, they actually are more likely to get burned by sitting mm. back and inviting pressure. So I'm I'm looking at my my bracket again, and I picked France initially, so I'm just like going against myself right now. I will say, if France wins this game, it will be because of Antoine Griezmann. I think he's had an outstanding tournament, low key, uh, yeah. and he's done so much work, and he's one of those rare players that's like technically brilliant and good in front of goal but will also like play suffer ball for the team yeah um and not complain about it and so i think your friends do win it, it'll be on him well um yeah however this plays out the semifinals will i'm sure will be will be insane and will be uh likely back 
I'd imagine we'd be back early next week to try to talk before the semis. Um, as we close things out, Christian, I just wanted to say thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about your experience over in Qatar and glad to have you back now selfishly, but I'm sure the vacation was nice and you enjoyed the, uh, the festival, but we'll, uh, this certainly won't be the last time you're on hardcore football. I'd imagine. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know, we'll have to see what happens. I, I don't know how much you guys cover the championships, so I don't know as a Wolves fan, <laughs> if I'll be much, if I'll have much to talk about next season. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, hopefully it doesn't come to that. We'll see what the second half holds for Wolves, but <laughs> yeah, hopefully we don't have to worry about, uh, expanding our coverage down into the second tier much more but <laughs> um yeah the uh no with with all that being said uh like i said at the top of the show we're hardcore football uh you can find us on all the major podcast platforms uh and at hxc football on twitter and instagram um check us out and like i said we'll probably be back before the semis um and i mean there is the potential out there for that Brazil Argentina semifinal. So we'll see what happens. But uh hope everyone enjoys the quarterfinals. They're probably kicking off uh by now, uh by the time you're listening to this. And uh we'll see you next week. But uh until then, everybody have a good weekend and uh we'll talk to you soon.